From Dream Cacao, I'm Max Gandy, and this is Chocolate on the Road, the show where we explore hot topics surrounding cacao and chocolate cultures around the world. So let's hit the road. Vietnam is a country in Southeast Asia, with thousands of years of history and more than 50 ethnic minority populations. The French invaded the country in the 1850s, and it was a hundred years before they were finally forced out. But some of their legacy remains in the cuisine, architecture, and vocabulary of modern Vietnam. For example, the word chocolate in French is chocolat. In Vietnamese, it's socolat. While the French didn't really bring chocolate to Vietnam, two Frenchmen did have a heavy hand in developing Vietnam's own young chocolate culture. If you think of Vietnamese chocolate at all, the first thing that probably comes to mind is Maru. This is Sam, one of the two Frenchmen behind Maru. When we started in 2011, there was virtually nothing you could call bean to bar chocolate making in Vietnam. So in that sense, we were real trailblazers. Uh, now I've, I've almost lost count of the, the number of you know, chocolate makers that have been setting up shop. Over the past few years, it seems like there's been a lot of cacao coming out of Vietnam. Cacao is the tropical fruit from which chocolate is made, and the southern half of Vietnam is in the perfect spot to grow it. But the story behind sourcing Vietnamese cacao, and often making chocolate from it, is much more complicated. While the modern era of Vietnamese cacao is just a couple of decades old, the tale of cacao in Vietnam goes back quite a bit further. Before we wade into the Vietnamese cacao and chocolate scene, Let's introduce our main historian a bit more. I'm Samuel Maruta, one of the two co-founders of Maru Chocolate. So could you tell me a bit about how you and Vincent founded Maru? Yeah, I mean, Maru's been around since 2011, so it's been almost eight years. I met Vincent in 2010. We were both in Vietnam. At the time, we, we both came up with the idea um, separately to do something with cacao in Vietnam. And then when we realized that we both share this interest in, in cacao in Vietnam, uh, we decided to join forces and started the company that bears our names because uh, Maru is, half of it is my family name, Maruta, and half of it is Vincent's name, Mo. So we stuck them together and, and started a, a company uh, making chocolate in Vietnam with cacao from Vietnam. And what's your current role at Maru? And how has it changed over the years as the company has grown? Well, <laughs> the, the funny thing is, when we started, not only we didn't know what we were doing, we, we had no experience making chocolate, but we had to do everything ourselves from the chocolate making to the business sides to, you know, trying to find farmers buying cacao, you know, all the hundreds of things that you, you need to do to, uh, to get 
a bean-to-bar chocolate company in a country of origin where there was no template for that so so we did pretty much everything ourselves the first batch of chocolate we made in in the kitchen of my house you know and then we had to find a place to create a chocolate factory hire people teach ourselves how to make chocolate teach other people how to make chocolate um, you know from from the technical sides of it the roasting tempering all all these technical things that make you a chocolate maker uh and now eight years later we're uh we've got a company with a fairly high-tech technical sides to it you know we've come a long way from uh, from making chocolate in my kitchen if only 2011 sam could see himself now with over 100 employees, Maru is by far the largest craft chocolate company in Vietnam. Last year, they held a cacao wine competition between farmers from different provinces, most of whom they've been working with for all eight years they've been in business. But this kind of future for Vietnamese cacao was not obvious when they started. Despite its current popularity, cacao has had a long history of failure in Vietnam. Back in the days when we had less frantic activity, I, I spent a bit of time researching whatever history of cacao and chocolate I could find in Vietnam. I mean, the, the lucky thing is a lot of the sort of archives are in French, so we found some uh, fairly enlightening stuff. So, so, for example, we had from the archives of the uh, former Tropical School of Agronomy in France, uh, the archivist told us that uh, the, the first recorded um, uh, cacao plantations in Vietnam took place in the province of Benche in the 1870s. And the cacao was planted by a priest, a Catholic priest called Father Gernot. Uh, so that, that's the first sort of recorded presence of cacao in, in what is now Vietnam. Then we found also in the colonial archives a decree from 1907 where the, uh, the person in charge of what was then known as the province of Cochin, China, uh, said, we're going to stop subsidizing plantations of cacao. It's very short, but at least it shows that at some point before 1907, uh, somebody thought that it was worth subsidizing the plantation of cacao. So, so there was some sort of effort to plant cacao in southern Vietnam in the very early 20th century. But then the one sort of written uh, extract that we found said basically a decision to stop subsidizing the plantation of cacao because it was deemed to be a failure at the time. And, and then pouring over records of shipments in and out of Indochina, statistical records show that there was very, very minute quantities of cacao being exported out of Indochina in the 1920s and 1930s, but uh, the, the quantities are, are truly ridiculous. We're talking maybe a few hundred kilos or a few tons per year, so nothing of any significance. Then jumping from the sort of colonial written records to uh, more of an oral history, when we talk to some of the 
older farmers in in the Mekong Delta, some of them tell us that, uh, and we're talking about people who would have been children in, in the 1960s during the Vietnam War, those farmers uh, tell us that there was a bit of cacao before, that there were some sort of uh, efforts being made uh, during the sort of American phase of the, the Vietnam War to plant cacao, but it was a very chaotic time, of course. And so the plantation of cacao was never something that took on a large scale. After 1975, when the, when the war ended, then there was, there was a new phase where basically with, with the help of Russian and Cuban advisors, the communist government tried to reintroduce cacao in Vietnam. And, uh, and plantations were made at that time. Actually, a, a few years ago, Vincent and I went to Cuba and we met some agronomist in Cuba who was in his 80s and, and remembered training people that had been sent from Hanoi to uh, Santiago de Cuba or to Baracoa to, to learn about the plantation of cacao. But th that was another false start because by the time those plantations were implemented. Uh, you had the fall of the Berlin Wall and, and Vietnam still being under embargo did not have any outlets for its cacao. So all those uh, sort of Soviet era plantations were, uh, were destroyed. The trees were ripped off and replaced by stuff that could be used within Vietnam. And then when we started uh, making chocolate 10 years ago, what we found, the small cacao infrastructure we found in Vietnam was the product essentially of, uh, of an initiative by uh, uh, U.S. companies Mars and Cargill uh, with the help of USAID in the very early 2000s to uh, relaunch cacao in Vietnam. In the end, demand from big chocolate manufacturers drove the replanting of cacao across Vietnam. Craft chocolate has merely swooped in and skimmed the best beans off the top. But despite its previous history, so many farmers had never even heard of cacao until about a decade or so ago. This is due in large part to the work of Dr. Phuc, the head agronomist at a university in Ho Chi Minh City, also known as Saigon. He's spent the last few decades harvesting, studying, and perfecting four varietals of cacao, the four best suited for Vietnamese growing conditions. His full experiment began in earnest in the year 2000 in Baria, a small province on the southeastern coast of Vietnam. He's the head of agriculture university in Ho Chi Minh City. He's the first guy to bring the cacao tree to Vietnam. Yeah, I wanted to learn more about the first cacao that came to Vietnam. So if you know anything, please tell me. In 2000, it means 19 years ago, 19 years. he was a farmer. He's a real farmer. He's used his bicycle, motorbike. motorbike. Oh, motorbike. No, no, yeah. motorbike. Yeah. The very old one. To go somewhere to find some guy have the appearance to grow that uh, some tree. New, new tree. New, yes, maybe now some new tree. And he met with Dr. Food. Mm. He really impressed about him. And then Dr. Food told him, okay, cacao is a good, a good tree. 
like uh, the food of God, right? Okay. Mm. <laughs> food, and, yeah, food of yes, the God. Food of the God, and then mm. uh, tell him, okay, he can grow and develop that tree in Vietnam. Mm. Uh, thì uh, lúc đó thầy mới uh, hỗ trợ cái dân dân này mà được 12 hộ nông dân trồng. Luckily, Mr. Phước mm. gave him 12,000 to grow the cacao in this area. It was around Baria? Yeah. Yes. All around Baria? Mr. Chin worked with Dr. Phuc as one of the first farmers to try to revive cacao in Vietnam. He's now the chairperson of Binon Cacao Park in Baria province, along with his two Japanese business partners. His chocolate business, Tanda, has been in business for all 19 years. He works with farmers across the Vietnamese cacao-growing regions to train them for growing cacao for big companies. These are companies wanting to invest in the future of Southeast Asian cacao, like Cargill and Mars, big names in chocolate. Other farmers have come to his company to learn about fermentation and other post-harvest practices. Sadly, during my visit to Vietnam, Dr. Phuc and his family were in mourning, and we didn't have a chance to meet. But he's regarded as the father of modern Vietnamese cacao. He ran hundreds of trials with grafted trees from Malaysia before deciding on the four best. These four have the best blend of pest resistance, flavor, and productivity. From there, he began his real-world trials in Baria. Mr. Tring is continuing the work of educating farmers, but it's not a smooth path, especially as the price for commodity cacao remains low. What is your daily schedule like? Okay, a lot of things to do every day because he has two companies. Tanda is his own company oh. and Bina and he need to do the technical of fermentation, supervising fermentation in his company in Tanda. And then he go to the farmer, the garden and talk to the farmer and he come here and talk to the guy, the technical guy, yeah, to do fermentation here and to make the products. Honestly, many, many cacao farmers, growers, they don't know the chocolate made from cacao bean. Oh, they just many. grow it and then... They sell, they grow, they sell to him or to yeah. some other, but they don't know. What? They don't know what from. happens. Yeah, they don't know chocolate made from. They are very happy, very surprised about the cacao from Vietnam and why the international brand coming here to make the chocolate, to buy the bean to make chocolate and why some Vietnamese company develop and make chocolate. You see like uh, Vietnam and some other, in, in Vung Tau and other two brands, right, Vietnamese. And the chocolate Vietnam also known by people in from other countries. And that's why they supply and they are very happy. And they think it's a stable 
um, business and stable tree to grow. And now more and more farmers they grow the cacao. Maybe in the last few years the cacao tree in this province around 200 cacaos, but now maybe 400 and 500. While he's hopeful about the future, Mr. Trang cannot control the whims of his fellow farmers and what they believe will make them money. Anywhere you, you, you go, like uh, in this area and uh, dark black, you see a lot of rubber trees. A lot. They, they cleared forests to plant the rubber trees. Normally, the government come in, they grow. But uh, some very, very, very few, maybe like a few percentage of uh, rubber trees belong to uh, private. private. So the main agricultural crop here, other than cacao, is rubber, but it's mostly from the government? From government. Ah. I, I can tell you the three big three is uh, rubber, pepper, and cashew. Cashews, really? Cash. Wow. Really big. I think, I think maybe, maybe the same pepper, 13,000 hectares. Maybe cashew, maybe 10,000. On the other hand, nor can Samuel Maruta control the choices of other chocolate makers or of the farmers they work with. The sourcing side definitely, definitely is a big, uh, for lack of a better word, headache. I mean, we have long-term solutions, or at least we have long-term projects to try and find solutions. But in the short term, you know, there's only so much cacao being produced in Vietnam out of this small quantity of cacao being produced, there's only so much cacao that we accept as being of the quality grade that we need to make our chocolate. And we're, you know, basically we're finding the limits of, uh, of what there is today. Vietnam is producing only about two to 3,000 tons of cacao per year, minuscule compared to other producing countries. But it's so difficult to tell scale, because farmers are constantly cutting down or planting new trees. Often they replace them with industrial crops, like rubber and palm. Rubber trees are probably the, the most awful of the, uh, well, the, I, I guess palm trees for palm oil are even worse. But, you know, they're, they're up there with palm oil in terms of environmental damage just rows after rows of those trees and nothing grows in between and uh, and the trees themselves are scarred with the with the sap coming out and being you know turned into rubber it's 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 pretty sad you know it's tough there's a lot of fads as well uh, if you look at what happened with black pepper for example for a long time vietnam was a marginal black pepper producer and then about 10 years ago, some farmers realized that they could sell their pepper for over $10 per kilo. And then they realized that they could, with the right mix of chemical entrants, uh, get incredible yields of up to three tons per year. So if you multiply three tons by $10, you've got um, $30,000 uh, worth of black pepper 
for every hectare you plant with black pepper. And those people became extremely rich by Vietnamese farming standards. And, and what happened is that everybody started planting pepper. And in places like Dak Lac, you know, you saw all these pepper farms coming up. And so just driven by Vietnamese farmers, world prices for black pepper went from $12 per kilo to down to, I think last time I checked, it was $3. So it was divided by four. And places that had had large production of black pepper, like India, for for decades were absolutely devastated by the, uh, lack of a better word, greed and enterprising spirit of, of Vietnamese farmers. Malhu has been a lasting example for farmers and locals alike who are interested in making chocolate in cacao-growing countries. Yet everyone I talk to in the local industry is remarking upon the same worrisome trends. For example, Tao, the co-founder and chocolate maker at Alak Chocolate in central Vietnam. Is there anything you're worried about over the next five or ten years with Vietnam's cacao and chocolate? Yeah, it's really, I really worry about that. Because like the, <clears throat> the land they use for planting the cacao, now let. So you see some brand name now, they stop to you like the Ding Yang, Ben Che, because not easy to find but the cacao. Because like, if you compare the Bobelo Rouge with the cacao, the farmer, they don't make much money. If they, they do the pomelo better. Uh, Be- yeah. Pomelo is better for making Yeah, money. yeah. And easy. And you take care of the pomelo easier more than you take care for the cacao tree. Right now, Tao sources all of her cacao from farmers in Dak Lac, a province further south. She actually first got into chocolate making three years ago, shortly after her daughter was born, and she left her job as a journalist. While her daughter has grown, so has her business and all of the problems which come with it. Aulak is actually the ancient name for Vietnam, as well as a cheeky translation of golden happiness. Her hometown of Hoi An is now famous as the lantern city of Vietnam. But the change is a much more recent development than one might think. When you were younger, did you eat chocolate? You, where did you grow up? <laughs> I grew up in Hoi An. That is the small city of the central of Vietnam. When in 1997, I passed the examination to become the student in the Ho Chi Minh City. When people ask me, where are you from? I said, Hoi An. No one know about my countryside. They know about Da Nang, but they don't know about Hoi An. That's just a small city. But now you see the Hoi An, a lot of people know about that. Very famous. Yeah, the famous now, yeah. And so, when you were little, did you ever eat chocolate? Oh man, the chocolate, like, I, I know the chocolate is something like the candy. It's super sweet, and you know, I don't like candy. I hate it, I hate it. I, I hear the chocolate, I hate it. I, I no idea. Until I make chocolate, and then I eat that. So, what is Vietnamese taste in chocolate? Like the local people around Hoi An, what kind of chocolate do they like? Yeah, they always eat the cheap chocolate. And they put a lot of sugar, milk. You know, you can put outside and a long day with the heat, but the summer, it's not melt. That's the chocolate we ate. That's it. I don't, they call chocolate, but I, when I know about chocolate, really chocolate, I think that's it, the check. 
old chalk, like <laughs> running yes. on the street. Yeah, oh. man, because you know you can food outside, you can food uh, that outside and it not melt. It means have a lot of sugar, have lots of something like chemical. In Thao's experience, chocolate is basically just for tourists in Vietnam, with very few exceptions. Most of her business comes from resorts or gift shops in the nearby Da Nang area. Da Nang is the third largest city in all of Vietnam. The locals who do buy from her love her blend of local ingredients, but they're relatively few and far between. In fact, she's currently working on a sweeter version of her 53% milk chocolate, as Hoyaners find it too bitter still. Dark chocolate really not easy to sell. Especially that's a Vietnamese. Yeah, it's bitter. What do they prefer? What flavors? Uh, flavor they like is the coconut and milk. You know, now I make the dark milk. People like dark milk. Or, you know, we make the drinking chocolate, hot chocolate. Oh, uh, we make here. Hot like, chocolate mix? I make, no, I make that so that they make by themselves. Like I do like that. That is chocolate. Mm. The after, not do um, tamarind. Mmm. Smells good, very earthy. Yeah. Yes, it's like uh, chocolate powder. Yeah, chocolate powder. Like the after you put in the wet grinder and take it out and you just mm, put in grinder, that dry grinder. Mm. They heat it up the bread milk and they just put the one spoon. They have one cup like that. Selling some untempered chocolate takes one small step off of Tao's large to-do list. But the difficulties of opening her business have largely been related to the supplies. From machinery to bar molds and tea bags, everything must be imported and then stored. Once the cacao arrives in Hoi An from her farmer partners in Tak Lak, it must all be stored in a temperature and humidity controlled area. And these days, land is very expensive, especially in tourist hotspots like Hoi An. My Hoi An in, in, in my mind or in the, my friend in the same my age, very different now. Very different with the Hoi An like you see now. Hoi An now is very noisy. Not quiet or like baseball like before. But if you come here, if you come here, you are tourist and you come here, you can see the Hoi An very different with the Hoi An in the daytime. It's the Hoi An before 6 a.m. and the after 10 p.m. That's the Hoi An. Very quiet, not much people on the roads, a lot of tourists. And you know now, a lot of tourists come, a lot of business come. So the people in really Hoi An, very friendly, very like very kind or something. Now change, they change. But while these issues are hitting Aulak hard, they're not exclusive to Hoi An. Down in Saigon and up north in Hanoi, Maru is also noticing the changes. Before he and Vincent started Maru, Sam had already been living and working in Vietnam for many years. He's noticed lots of changes in the South as well. One of the things that we see in Vietnam, and I'm, I couldn't tell you if it's the case in Thailand or in Cambodia or in Indonesia, but land in Vietnam is extremely expensive, agricultural land. Because, uh, I mean, there's a... Uh, sort of perfect storm of demographics and uh, and the fact that all the agricultural land was pretty much evenly divided between the farming families back in the 1980s. And so you've got people who have very small farms 
and you've got a generation of people who became farmers, uh, you know, 30 years ago, and and it's their sort of retirement fund. So they will sell land, but they will sell it at a very high price. The, the country has been growing very fast. There's been a lot of jobs uh, in the industry or services and, and people moving from the countryside to the city. And, and, and so you see that there's not so many people staying in the countryside. And for those who stay, adding on to the farm, to the family farm by buying out their neighbors is, is a very costly option. So it makes for a very tough environment if you if you have a plan to, say, plant cacao, finding land in the first place is very complicated. Vietnam is interesting. and More and more people come to Vietnam, and uh, I don't know if Vietnam meets their expectation of what Vietnam should be like, but it, it, it's a very diverse country. I think if you've had a chance to come more than once, you, you will realize that you know, they, from the north to the south, they, they're really almost like different countries bound by a common history and a common language, although big accent differences. And I think that diversity is great. It's also, I think, a country that's changing at it's just incredibly frightening pace. And so if you've been to Vietnam 10 years ago and you come back now, it's almost like visiting two different countries. I think. And that's probably sort of expectation people should have, especially if they've been here before. The number of local visitors is on the rise at Maru. While I'm not sure what employees at Maru are paid, the average wage in the service industry in Vietnam is about 15,000 Vietnamese dong per hour, or about 65 US cents per hour. Whereas office workers in Vietnam get paid more like the equivalent of $3 to $4 per hour. So while most service industry workers would be hard-pressed to pay $4 for a chocolate bar, for office workers in the city, it's definitely an affordable luxury. Vietnam is still a country changing very quickly. I only hope that their chocolate industry can keep up with demand. At home and on the road. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chocolate on the Road. If you liked it, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, and share it in any way you see fit. Your support makes all the effort put into each episode worth it. And especially huge thank you to Sam Thao and Mr. Ching and his interpreter, Mr. Thao, for being in this episode. To learn more about our guests, check out the show notes for this episode with the link in the description, or check them out on my website at damecacao.com. That's D-A-M-E-C-A-C-A-O dot C-O-M. Have a wonderful day, and I hope you'll join me next time we go on the road. Mm-hmm.